Simple Beep, Episode 19, All the Words with Aaron McKean. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on this episode, we are also joined by a guest. And our guest this week has many, many things that she does. She is the founder of Wordnik and Reverb. She's an author, dressmaker, and lexicographer, and probably other things that we will learn. And this is Erin McKean. Welcome to the show, Erin. Hi. Thanks, y'all, for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. So you are extremely polytropaic and are a word nerd and geek of many stripes. Um, and besides these many roles, you are also a programmer, but uh, was doing some research and says and found that you've only really recently self-identified as a programmer. So looking back at your career in many of these other respects, what kind of computer user did you see yourself as before you were willing to take on that programmer role? And how did you get there? That's an interesting question. Like what kind of computer user I saw myself as. So um, I didn't really start using computers till I was in high school. Um, I went to high school in the um, uh, John Hughes movie era. And um, <laughs> I did take AP computer science. I remember nothing of the experience. I'm, I, I remember that we did Pascal, which also is a way to carbon date me. Well, I think that there was a lot of, there were a lot of Mac programmers doing Pascal, uh, probably around that same time. That was one of the dominant programming languages on the classic Mac. I remember enjoying the class. I didn't enjoy the instructor very much. He was also at the same time trying to teach me pre-calculus, and I think a lot of my dislike of pre-calculus carried over and attached to him, poor guy. Um, but I know that we were using PCs in that class, and, and I actually had a PC at home. I had an IBM PS2. I had a friend that had a Mac, but I mostly remember that he would play Castle Wolfenstein, and I would watch... Um, yeah, uh, that, that, <laughs> that was pretty much the whole interaction we had with the computer. I didn't really start using Macs until I went off to college. There was a computing lab because I didn't have my own computer. Who had their own computer? Um, and they had, they had, I actually used Macs infrequently, but they had next machines. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there was a, always a huge line for the PCs and a huge line for the Macs, but the Nexts were, like, really scary looking. Like, they were black on black on black. You know that thing in, like, um, was it in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where they get on the ship and it's entirely black and then there's black lettering on a black background and black lights that light up black? Like <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very Douglas Adams. That also sounds very Steve Jobs. They had a lot of uh, similar aesthetic around that time. <laughs> so yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, so I remember using those machines because there was usually not a line, and I, I realized that if I just saved everything I was writing in like RTF, I could open them on any machine, and then I didn't have to I, I didn't have to choose a side. I could just go to whatever computer was available first. 
And I did prefer to use the Next machines because they had um, Breakout on them. <laughs> and um, uh, it, the other machines you, you really weren't allowed to play games on because there was a line of people like trying to write papers. But if there was no line for the Next machines, you could just kind of hang out and read Usenet and play Breakout. Um, yeah, <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, I probably started using Macs more seriously in college because uh, I started dating my husband and he was working for the film, uh, like the the documentary film group, which showed all the movies on campus, and uh, they needed desperate help proofreading their film guide. So I was using like really early page layout software um, to correct all of their horrendous typos. And because they were all arty people doing page layout, they were clearly taking up time in the Mac lab then rather than the next lab or the PC lab. Oh, the film group had their own Mac, like a really early, like uh, all-in-one Mac, like the little classic. And that was fun to use. So after college, then you got into more of your career, which I first knew of you as lexicographer. And for those of our listeners who are tech nerds and not word nerds, we should probably give a brief explanation of what exactly a lexicographer is. A lexicographer is somebody who makes dictionaries. And sometimes it says writes, and sometimes it's, it's defined as someone who writes a dictionary. Sometimes it's defined as someone who edits a dictionary. But uh since WordNick is not really made by writing or editing, I just like the catch-all verb make. Yeah, so you got into that sort of career, or at least publishing, early on. Oh, yeah. I've never had a job as a grown-up that wasn't on a dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> I, started, I started working on children's dictionaries for a textbook company called Scott Forsman before I graduated from college. I started as an intern, and then I got hired full-time right after I graduated. And um, they had an interesting setup in that all of the editorial work and page layout work was done in the entire company on Macs. Um, but the specific editing software needed to work on the dictionary files was an HTML editing software made in Copenhagen that only ran on OS2. Yeah, I think I've seen uh, mention of this story <laughs> a couple other places on uh, Dan Bogan's site, The Setup, uh, you've mentioned this. And so I thought that this was just too good of a story to pass up. While at first it seems like a not Mac-related story, though I think it has a Mac-related bent towards the end. Yeah, a, a little bit. So um, <laughs> so the, the software was called Gesterlex. And it was made by this lovely group of people in Copenhagen. It was a huge perk of the job because I got to go to Copenhagen a couple of times to meet with the developers. And um, nothing else in this educational publisher ran on OS2 at all. So I ended up doing a lot of the networking, like how to connect the OS2 machines to our like storage servers and to the printers. Please tell me you didn't have to also connect them to an Apple Talk network because... I can just imagine that would be a nightmare. I don't even remember. I do remember that this was really pre-internet. They also got me like a 
pre what we think of as the internet. I had a CompuServe account that was connected to one of three dial-up modems in the company. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it was cheaper than long-distance phone calls to Copenhagen, obviously, to have us communicate by email. And I just remember, like, I had every book ever published on OS2, like all five of them. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a lot of, like, hacking just kind of hitting it until it worked. And and the the company really wasn't super happy with maintaining basically this whole shadow network. Like the IT guys did not like it. All the dictionary editors had two machines on their desks. Like we used the Mac for like, you know, Microsoft Office and CC Mail and all of this stuff. And then, but the bulk of our work was done on these OS2 boxes. And so they were like, okay, um, this is not good. And then the company that made the software decided they were going to move to the exciting and lucrative world of interactive CD-ROM development. And they were not going to make HTML editing software anymore. And so we were like, well, can we buy the source code? And, you know, there were all these conversations back and forth and, like, maybe, maybe not. And they were like, well, if we're going to get the source code, we should make it run on the Mac because that's what we use. So they actually sent me – the software was written in in C++. So they actually sent me to a Unix systems administrator class and a C++ class because their idea was that I would port the software from OS2 to Mac – So just how daunting of a proposition did that seem to you with, I mean, you didn't really have any formal computer science training beyond a couple courses, right? And very self-taught. Literally two classes, one in high school, one in college. And then these two courses that they sent me to take at like DePaul's extension school. And then um, I really had no idea what was involved. I'd written a bunch of really bad Perl scripts to to convert the typesetting files that all the dictionaries had been in into the SGML that was used by Gestrelex, which was basically like eight straight weeks of reading things into an array, running a bunch of regexes over them, and then spitting them back out again. Was that like straight tech that they were in for typesetting? I have no idea what the original format was. All I know is it only it only distinguished the entry blocks and then the styling. So it was like bold, italic, that's it. So we had to intuit the schema and then dump it in. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. They gave me they gave me $60 worth of O'Reilly books on Pearl. I think I had all of the books that were in existence, and uh, a subscription to the Pearl Journal, which basically I didn't really read because it was all people writing obfuscated Pearl and being really, really clever. And um, yeah, so I had no clue. And so what happened was, is they sent me back to Copenhagen. This probably would have been my third trip. And I sat down with their developer, who's a really, really nice guy. And we, oh, like, this is the big reveal, like, all of the non-disclosures have been signed. Like, we are ready to go. He's going to walk me through the code. And we open it up. And that's the instance that we realized that all the comments were in Danish. 
<laughs> all the all the variable names were Danish. Like it was Danish. <laughs> and of course, I don't speak any Danish. I don't read any Danish. And they just kind of looked at it, looked at me. We we looked through some. And there's no O'Reilly book for Danish. You can't you can't self teach that in a week. <laughs> no, and in fact, I was once talking to a couple of of people whose job it was to teach people Danish, and they just like kind of shook their head. It was like, yeah, you know, English speakers. They can get to where they can read it pretty well, but speaking, and then they just trailed off. Like, they didn't even want to finish that sentence. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we spent the next couple days kind of, like, poking at it a little bit. And then it was kind of like a total, you know, saved by the bell scenario. The company that I was working for got bought, and the company that bought them had their own SGML editing software. And it was kind of like everybody breathed a big sigh of release. Like, no money had changed hands except for, you know, the $200 or whatever that it cost to send me to these classes. So even though you didn't wind up having to port this Danish software from OS2 to the Mac, it sounds like, you know, you were in pretty deep in terms of programming and scripting tasks already at that point, even just on the Mac side. And so still not a programmer. I mean, I've suffered from this myself where it's like, oh, I'm not a programmer. And just recently, I think I got over it and decided to say, no, look, I'm writing all these scripts. I know, have passing knowledge of a handful of programming languages. I'm a programmer. I'm just not a developer. But at that point, you still didn't feel like, eh, you made it as a programmer. No, because I really, like, the bulk of my time was spent in, like, making dictionary. So it was all a lot of kind of dictionary project management and creating data. And the scripting was more about, oh, this is the stuff I have to get done before I can do the stuff I have to do. And I enjoyed it. I loved it. But most of the people I worked with kind of thought of it on the order of, oh, Aaron makes these things like really complicated word macros. Um, <laughs> there was one. There was one book that we had in the the dictionary department, and I'm I'm not going to mention it in case they come after me. But it was out of print, but not out of copyright. And they kept every editor in the company needed to use this book, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, I got tired of having to go and track it down because as the most junior person in the department for a while, that was my job as well. And so I, I, um, I found another copy, and I had it ripped apart and scanned and OCR'd, and then I wrote a little Mac Pearl program that I could install on everybody's desktop so they could get the data they needed out of that book, and they would leave our copy alone. I still have it. I mean, I still have it if I could find something that ran, you know, classic Mac Pearl. <laughs> it was really like a, a key pair lookup program because the, the book was just a giant table. It cost $800 to scan the book. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but, but there were no copies to be had. It was so out of print that the, the copies were way more expensive and to buy a used copy for everybody in the office would have been terrible. I, I don't even remember how I found the woman who had access to the fancy scanner. Right. This is way before Google Books started their mission to digitize the world's collection of everything ever printed. 
Oh, yeah. This was would have been like, oh, mid to late 90s. Yeah. So that was a huge task. And I'm glad that the OCR was in any way accurate. <laughs> it wasn't all that accurate, but it was manageable. <laughs> oh, so you've talked a lot about uh, like different platforms and porting uh, work from one to the other. And you also mentioned using next boxes because no one else uh, wanted to. Um, so I think you mentioned uh, elsewhere that you got a Unix certification early in your career. Uh, so like with your previous experience with Unix and the classic Mac, was the advent of Mac OS X with its Unix foundation a big deal for you personally or at work? It was pretty great. Like I, I, I feel like when I realized that I could open the terminal and what was inside was something that I already knew how to 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 kind of poke at. It was really really useful, uh, especially because um, there's a lot of stuff that the Mac hides from you if you don't know where to look for it. Oh yeah, and so. Uh, sometimes when I would be talking to coworkers who were like, oh, I don't know where to find this thing. And I could open up the terminal and like find it for them and then give them the path so that they could go and find it. That was, that was pretty fun. And, and I also had to do like a lot of times when I was a remote worker, I had to do some kind of dumb workarounds, like, you know, spoofing Mac addresses so I could get onto networks that kept forgetting me. <laughs> lots of um, lots of kludges became more possible. You know, I adopted that word, Erin. Oh yes, <laughs> and I, I liked your use of polytropaic, right? Pulled in many different directions. It's the uh, the epithet of Odysseus. Oh, I did not know that. Many tricks. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, these are all going over my head, by the way. <laughs> we'll get back to the back to the tech stuff. Yeah, I think that's interesting coming it, that benefit of having an idea of a Unix command prompt coming to Mac OS X because for those of us who knew nothing but the classic Mac or maybe some vague dim memories of a DOS prompt, that was the new piece in Mac OS X that was like, you can go play with this, but it's fire. So it's really useful, but it's fire. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can completely hose everything. I mean, just in the same way that in the classic Mac, for us, I think we were digging around in every corner of the machine with ResEdit and knowing that, yeah, if you were being not careful about that, that you could completely destroy your system and make it not boot. But even even with ResEdit, that seemed a little bit more friendly just because it was graphical. And the the notion of opening up a Unix terminal where it's all syntax, it's more like programming. And if you mess up your syntax, I mean, I've discovered now because I use the terminal much more frequently that if you mess up the syntax 99 times out of 100, it just does nothing. Right. <laughs> um, rather than actually destroying anything. It does seem a little scarier, but there are a lot of things that I use the terminal for that there are graphical interfaces to that I just can't deal with. Like I can't deal with a GUI for Git because it messes with my mental model. Plus they have that scary octopus cat thing. 
<laughs> I just feel like my mental model of using get is that I say, please get, will you do this thing? And either it says, yes, boss, or it totally ignores me. Yeah. And with the graphical interface, I just feel like it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's too messy. Yeah. I think for many years for me on OS ten, early OS ten, and even to today, my command line in some ways is launch bar, which is uh yeah, it's a launcher utility and many, many more things. Um lets you do file manipulations, navigate files, search, perform actions, all kinds of stuff. And people talk about, you know, pipe syntax in Unix. And I'm like, well, yeah, you hit tab in launch bar. And it does many of the same things. Um, and that was sort of my sidestep way of doing that. But I still have that sort of desire to just, you know, yeah, take this and put it over here, manipulate it this way. And sometimes it just goes no. But most of the time it, it flies along. Uh, to go back even further in the history of the Mac than when it... Uh merged with Unix to become OS X. Uh, you told a story when you were on the Embedded podcast about HyperCard. And uh, I know Ed and I both used HyperCard a lot back in the day. Uh, so I, we have a couple questions about it. Uh, first, um, I think you said it got you out of your math requirement in college. Uh, was that similar to what you said? I think you said you're, you're in, in high school, it was the same teacher as pre-calculus. Was it just that computer science and math were all lumped together? Yes, where I, where I went to school, at the time I went to school, computer science was like a, a sub-discipline of the pure mathematics department. And so uh, the, the class that got me out of math was called Computer Programming as a Liberal Art. Which is great. Every school should still have one of those. It was really helpful. And it was, it was a great class because it was kind of the class of last resort. Like... If if you had tanked calculus and statistics, this was all that you could take. And I didn't even try. Like, I was pretty... I had taken calculus in high school, and we had agreed to disagree. And so we had an amicable breakup. And uh, and I, at the time, I didn't have any interest in statistics whatsoever, which is kind of something I regret now. Um so I just went ahead and was like, I'm going to take this class and I'll never have to do math again. And I like computers and HyperCard looks friendly. <laughs> and it turned out to be great. But a lot of the people in the class with me were like white knuckling because they were like, computers are scary. And this is my last chance to pass math. So as soon as you figured out the way to switch over into the, the window where you could right, raw hyper talk. That was probably where you spent most of your time, right? While everyone else was still trying to figure out how to do, you know, like on mouse up with a button. Oh, I don't remember that bit, but I do remember that it, it was a two quarter sequence. So the, the first quarter was like principles and the second quarter was projects. And a lot of people who'd already um, had one, um, problematic quarter of some other mathematics uh we're just going to take the first quarter of this sequence and then petition to have you know uh two wrongs turned into a right <laughs> <laughs> and the, they almost always granted that petition so if you had one kind of bad statistics quarter and one okay computer science quarter they would be like yeah your math is done good go um 
so the the second quarter the first quarter had like 35 students in it which was kind of big for a class there and the second quarter had like five <laughs> students <laughs> so we ended up pretty much just like pair programming the whole time though of course we didn't call it that like we like okay well you and I are going to work on this project and we're just going to keep you know it was one of those things where you said this is what we're going to do and these are the features it's going to have and this is the date we're going to turn it in and then the, the instructors were just there to like help if we got really stuck so we um we made an application that if you painstakingly entered in everything that was in your pantry and refrigerator it would suggest recipes that you could make yeah i think you you mentioned this on the podcast episode and then you followed up with now there are like full apps and services dedicated to doing the same thing that are trying to be like cool native ios apps when really you're able to achieve it in hypercard yes but we couldn't, HyperCard did not let us overcome the really big stumbling block, which is that nobody wants to type in a list of what's in their pantry. So all those apps use like UPC code recognizers and like they sync with your, you know, Amazon fresh order or they, what they solve is the pain point of, not, not the pain point of what am I going to eat for dinner, which you can solve that at in and out Burger any day of the week, <laughs> you know. They solve the pain point of, I don't know what I have. Yeah, that's a big difference. Were there any other HyperCard projects that you worked on? Or was that sort of the the one quick time that you were using HyperCard? I know I tried to convince like a couple of people at my first job that we should really look into like making some kind of HyperCard thing for schools. But it never really went anywhere because selling technology and education is terrible. And they were having enough, like, even selling the things that they had already built was really hard. So, like, having the most junior person on staff who, by the way, also had zero teaching experience come in and say, we should do this thing, they made the right call. I keep meaning to look up HyperCard emulators and use them to scare my teenager. Like, hey, this is what computers used to look like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when he was little, I tried to set up our Mac Classic for him to use because I thought, oh, it would be so cute. And he, he very promptly put a Playmobil cannonball into the disk drive. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you, you don't recover from that. No, that's... <laughs> That's a real hardware crash. <laughs> yeah, those, those Playmobil cannonballs, they're much more destructive than you would think. Yeah, well, you can, you can run it all now in Basilisk, which is a classic Mac emulator, which crashes all the time, but it's just software. So, And that's kind of reminiscent of actually using the classic Mac OS on native hardware. Yeah, we're, we're not really sure whether it actually crashes more than it used to or um, whether it just seems like it. Oh, it's a really perfect emulation. Yeah. So are there any, uh, you know, I know that with WordNick, and we'll talk about this a little bit in a minute, you know, there's a lot of pushing words around, right? Like that's the kind of programming that's going on there. It's, you know, natural language processing and that sort of thing. Um, but before we get to that, are there any sort of, you know, GUI applications that you really love, modern tools that serve that same sort of role as 
hypercard where it seems like, you know, there are these sort of limitless applications. You can make something for fun or for practical use at home or for something for education, all those different uses. I am not sure if that dream will ever be realized. It's, it's kind of like anything that's sophisticated enough to be like the all-purpose tool will kind of collapse under its own weight. And, and so I think that um, there's this problem in that by the time that you've really specified what you want to build, you're often like three quarters of, of the way towards um, just being able to build it. And you probably want to use a tool that's exactly the right tool for what you want to build. And I think actually maybe the one thing that, that I don't know whether it proves or disproves this kind of on-the-fly hypothesis is think about WordPress. Like you could make a WordPress site do just about anything. Like it can be your CMS, it can be your storefront, it can be... You can add any kind of extension or plug-in. Any or... kind of extension. You know, you can probably control ICBMs with a WordPress extension. I don't know what else <laughs> you can do. Um, but like once you reach some kind of certain point with WordPress, when you know how to do the thing that you want to do that's not bog standard WordPress... It's, it's kind of like you, you take a look and you're like, whoa, do I really want to do this? The knowledge itself kind of holds you back. Yeah, you're three quarters of the way to writing a WordPress extension that replaces 90% of WordPress. And then you realize that it's just a standalone thing that you should probably run on a web server somewhere. Exactly. And, and so like then, then the like sweet spot for doing that is someone who... Uh, knows just enough to be a danger to themselves and others. Which is like a place where I've been a lot of the time. And if you're a lucky person like I am, usually it works out okay. But it it just takes like one spell of bad luck to to have the, you know, <laughs> the the house of cards that you've built out of interlocking WordPress extensions come crashing down. Yeah. So I think that relates to one of the things that you've said about WordNick, which was your first big internet project. And you said that when you started WordNick, you knew a lot of things, but those things were mostly about dictionaries. But of course, WordNick is a website. So how do you get from dictionary to website? Mostly by not knowing very much. I know that sounds un like wrong, but... Again, because I knew I didn't know very much, I started working with people who knew a lot about things that weren't dictionaries and tried to metaphorize the problem into something that they knew about. Like, you know, telling somebody, oh, I've got 125,000 uh, dictionary entries. They don't know what that is. But if I say, oh, well, to start with, we're going to have 125,000 records, and each of those records is going to have up to 30 fields, and only a couple of them are required. Then they're like, oh, that's a database problem. We have to figure out what the right database is. They don't think of it as a dictionary problem anymore because they don't know what a dictionary problem is. 
So in the earlier history of WordNick, how much of that was uh, you getting to just explain problems to people and how much of that was you sitting down in front of your Mac and just sort of noodling away and trying to actually solve problems on your own? What, how did that support network grow? It was like 90% explaining to people and 10% regular expressions. <laughs> <laughs> like it was really like, you know, we'd get we'd get some data and it wouldn't quite fit. So it would be like, oh, okay, well, let's just, let's just change the data. Um, because a lot of the time making a slight change to a bunch of data was easier than making a big change to a schema. And then as kind of time went on, you know, I spent years and years in smallish rooms with lots of really good software developers. So it was kind of a lot of learning by osmosis and learning by asking awkward and inconvenient questions. Um, because that's the huge advantage of being the founder is that people generally feel an obligation, whether it's real or not, to answer your questions. So if you say, oh, okay, well, why are we doing this? And the answer is because it's better. And then you say, well, why is it better? And they say it's better because, you know, it's schemaless. And you say, well, why is schemaless better? And then you just get all the way down to the end, which is let's like, oh, well, we can add stuff whenever we want. And yeah, and I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that sounds better to me. Um, <laughs> and then you, you know, um, and then sometimes it starts to get to the point where you're like, oh, okay, will it take me longer to convince somebody to do this? Or will it take me longer to actually learn how to do this? And then because I did have some sysadmin stuff at the beginning, like it was easy for me to do things like, oh, I'll, you know, set up all of our domain names and set up an FTP and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So all these people learning about the problems and helping solve them at WordNick, you know, doing lots of natural language processing and machine learning. And I did a little bit of that in grad school, although I dabbled to about the extent that you did, Aaron, in computer science in college. It was like, oh, I'll audit one course. Um, and I feel like a lot of the people around me who are doing that um, today you know, are sort of just working on whatever soulless command prompt will go in front of them. So are you the only one showing up with your your Mac? Like, what is the sort of platform breakdown around WordNick? Is it is it a very happy Mac shop? Is it everybody coexisting peacefully? Yeah, so I think from the beginning it was all Macs all the time. Um, and, you know, now that we've reincorporated as a non nonprofit, it's much, much smaller. So still all Macs all the time. Um, uh, like, the, the stack in general is that... Um, uh, we use Mongo for a lot of the dictionary and corpus data. And the API um, layer is all kind of Scala slash Java. And the front end of WordNick is all Node. And um, what I'm working on right now is trying to update uh, the API very slowly, but hopefully surely, um, to be another node app, but it'll still be separate. So trying to make the 
uh, API a little bit um, more modular. So it's it's definitely microservice e right now, but it's one kind of big microservice. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's a great API. It's very you can play with it. Um, uh, my technical co-founder at WordNick, Tony Tam, he's the guy behind Swagger, you know, the API description framework. So the API is all Swaggerized, and you can play around with it. And that was actually the Swaggerized WordNick API was probably the thing that got me furthest towards saying I'm a coder. I try and code every day. It's hard to say the phrase Swaggerized WordNick API and convince people on the outside that you're not a coder, right? <laughs> well, it meant that I could poke at it and not have to bother people. You know, if I wanted to say, oh, okay, well, what are the parameters for this API and and how do I call it and what kind of data am I going to get back? I could just go do it. And then I could go, you know, control F for that call in the code and see, oh, how are we implementing this? Like, you know, what happens when it when it gives me back something I don't expect, are we accounting for that? Um, and uh, that was fun. Like I really, I really enjoy that part. Like if if I were living in a perfect world, I would basically do nothing but make data sets and write front end code to display them to people. Like maybe not front front end, not like browser, but like uh, you know, hey, here's a little function that will give you a nicely sorted list of everything that's got the most common n-grams in English. That sounds like my idea of a perfect day. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe for our listeners who haven't used WordNick heavily, like I have, um, because I am also a linguist by trade. All of your listeners. Perhaps. Um, <laughs> what kind of big gobs of data do you have and how does that look? It probably would work best if I kind of explain like why WordNick and how is it different? Absolutely. So the idea behind WordNick is that you should be able to look up every single word in the English language. That you should never, ever again have to ask the question like, is this word in the dictionary? Because we would have all of them. And then you would never, ever ask the question, is this a good word? You would ask the question, what's this word good for? Which the answer could be nothing. Yes, exactly. So you wouldn't be trying to use a dictionary to answer questions of wordishness, like is this a word or not a word? Perfectly you, cromulent word. Perfectly cromulent word. You would use the dictionary to figure out, does this word do what I need it to do? You know, does it persuade? Does it enrage? Does it convey my meaning the way I need it to be conveyed? So the reason that all the words in English haven't been in all the dictionaries is because writing definitions takes a really, really, really long time. Uh, a good definer could write maybe 30 definitions in a day, and that might be pushing it. And, you know, if it's for a more complicated type of dictionary, like the OED, a historical dictionary, where you have to arrange citations as well as write definitions, take that down by an order of magnitude at most. Yeah, or if you if you draw the short stick like uh, Corey Stamper did at Merriam-Webster and get to redefine God for the new definite new edition of the dictionary, that's like a two month project. Yeah, yeah, totally. So if you're if you're time constrained in that way, then what happens is you you tend to leave out words that are super rare or super new 
or very restricted in their range of application, in other words, jargon. And certainly you're going to leave out, you know, subgroup slang. So you get kind of the, the 7-Eleven of words, right? You can go in there and get the basics, but you're not going to get everything. And this is a bigger problem, I think, than most people realize. There was a, there was a paper published in the journal Science, you might have heard of that one, <laughs> the journal, I mean, in, in 2010, where they did an analysis of the Google Books corpus, and they said, oh, you know what? About 52% of the unique words in English aren't in any dictionary. That's like more than half. They called it lexicon. You know, that's not like more than half. It is more than half. Yeah, I remember some of the, not to go too far into linguist talk, but going back to your old OCR of the book that everybody needed uh, at work, I remember there were a few linguists who de- delved into that data and found that, yeah, there's probably a ton of words that were not caught. And then there were also all kinds of like grody OCR errors that were getting counted among those not in the dictionary words. So like... There's always those problems with dealing with data. Yeah, and they were really only looking at words that occurred like more than once in a billion times, which sounds, you know, pretty rare. But like, if you look at a billion words, you're going to see like cantaloupe 40 sometimes. Oh, at least. Yeah. And yeah, so once in a billion, even though it sounds rare, is not all that rare. And we've got pretty much infinite storage space, so we should just include all of them but so how are you going to do that if you don't have the time to write definitions so the way wordnik works is that if there if somebody did already write a definition for that word and we have access to it we'll show you that definition but if not what we try to do is analyze as many example sentences as possible and show you example sentences that read like definitions because some word somewhere, um, if it's been used, it's very likely to have been defined by somebody who wants to make sure that people understand it. So um, I found one on WordNick today for the word, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, Frolf or Frolf, F-R-O-L-F. Frolf is Frisbee golf. Oh, yep, sure, that makes sense. It's not the world's most beautiful blend, but it totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. And I have to say, I haven't checked all of the extant dictionaries, but I assume, just from my own personal experience, that froth would be very high up on the list of words to not include. (laughs) It's pretty rare. It's kind of silly. Um, Frisbee golfers, by and large, aren't the kind that write angry letters to dictionaries. Um... So, but there's a sentence on Wordic that says, you know, gives a lot of other stuff. And then it says, play froth. And then in parentheses, it says, also known as Frisbee golf, and then goes on. So once you've read that sentence, you really don't need to read a definition of froth that just says Frisbee golf. You actually get more context. So those sentences have patterns that can be... um, those sentences can be featureized with with natural language techniques and then can be found through rule-based techniques or machine learning techniques or someday time-allowing deep learning techniques. And it's more fun to learn words kind of by seeing them in their natural habitat. It's like the difference between going to a zoo and going on safari. 
So at what point did you ever get the idea that that was possible? Like when was the the turning point in technology where you realized that we can go beyond just you know hacking a lookup table from a scanned book to really be able being able to move to big data and get that kind of rich context without having to pay someone to hunt for it manually? So uh, <laughs> the way WordMix started is I, I gave a talk at a conference in 2007. It was um, TED in Monterey. And we'll link uh, to the video of the TED talk in our show notes. Thank you. Um, so I was talking about how books are the wrong container for the dictionary because they just can't hold enough. They're way more words. And I think we've seen that recently. Um, there was that project, the guy tried to print out Wikipedia. Yes, that was awesome. <laughs> Wasn't that just, just a couple months ago? And it takes up like an entire room, right? Yeah. Because it's at an even larger scale than a dictionary, right? Yes. Yeah, it's just paper. Paper has a lot of stuff going for it, but reference is not one of those things. And... Uh, so right after I gave the talk, I was introduced, like, almost literally as I came off stage, I was introduced to Roger McNamee, who's this fantastic guy, and he was like, that should be a company. And uh, as I'm sure you know, um, going from being, you know, the editor-in-chief of American Dictionaries for Oxford University Press to startup person is, like, really well-traveled. It's just like going to Stanford Business School. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had no clue. But... He, Roger was just a, he's just a fantastic guy. And he was like, well, let's just talk about it. But when you got up on stage to give that talk, did you even have the feeling like, yeah, this is technically possible. Like we are, we are ready to break the bonds of the paper dictionary. Yeah, because there was so much going on then, like this was in 2007. So it was, there was so much going on where you could be like, it was the early days of crowdsourcing you could look at Wikipedia. You could look at, um, there were all these citizen science projects, like a project where people with their telescopes were finding comets. Um, you know, civilians, not scientists. Collaborative computing things like SETI at home. Exactly. And I don't know if the protein folding thing had started yet, but it was it was that kind of atmosphere. So I was like, yeah, we could we could find all these words. And, but I was still thinking about, well, how are we going to define them? And so I just kept thinking about, like, I, I basically, I just kept running the numbers. And the numbers don't work. You just can't scale traditional writing and editing. It's very valuable. I think, like, the OED does a tremendous job. But what they do is skilled artisanal work. But if you can replicate for as many people as possible a kind of understanding experience that doesn't rely on that artisanal work, you should do it. And so while we were talking, I was like trying to think of all the parts of what made up a dictionary and then tried to imagine like, what does it look like without this part? And then I was like, huh. It actually looks okay without the definitions because you're just basically cutting out the middleman. Like, I'm the middleman. The person who writes the definition is the interpreter between the evidence and you. 
So why can't we just find the best evidence, the clearest evidence that doesn't need an expert to interpret it? Because most of the words you learned in your lifetime, you didn't read a dictionary definition for. You saw a good sentence in context, and now you know that word. That word is yours. So you really were going for a user-friendly kind of approach then. Oh my goodness. My goal is to make Wordnik the friendliest dictionary ever. That's why our logo, <laughs> that's why our logo is a heart. That's why like my weekly quota of exclamation points is in the triple digits. <laughs> like I really think that people love words. And if you create an experience that makes people feel bad about their words, these things that they love, it would be like making a gulag for babies, right? Like how can you ruin babies? <laughs> you know why why like and if you're not if you're not trying to to brand yourself as the authority you don't have to be stern if you're just saying hey this is what we found here it is for you here have this heart to go with it then you don't have to have all of the like the trappings of authority because that's not what you're trying to be. That's that's going to be a, a really good big takeaway for me. And uh, I think w the last episode we did was about icons on the Mac. Oh, yeah. Like the little dog. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so how they set kind of a friendly tone that set Macs aside from the kind of all work, no play PCs that were uh, command lines or boring spreadsheets or things like that. And I think this even ties into something from your TED Talk uh, where you said that uh, computers, uh, at least towards what you're using them for, won't do much other than speed up the process of uh, scanning and compiling and helping sort and search for all these dictionaries. Uh, so is there, do you see any kind of parallels there between like the, the friendly and the not friendly with kind of like computers doing the not friendly, the the work tasks, and anything in the Mac or or even iOS or otherwise that's that's more of a friendly side. That's a really good point. I mean, I think a lot of the early Mac iconography was really, um, I mean, it was really smart. Like, if computers aren't scary, more people will want to use them. And lots of people really think that English is scary. Lots of people think that English is scary. Lots of people have a personal history with dictionaries where it was a conduit of punishment. Like a number of people tell me, oh yeah, when I screwed up in school, my teacher would make me copy pages from the dictionary. I, I just want to find all those teachers and say, you are the worst human beings. Like that doesn't, if you want to engender a love for knowledge, like that's not the way to do it. <laughs> well, and I think... My my recollection of the of dictionaries being totally counterintuitive in elementary school was the primary t use of a dictionary was uh, if you didn't know how to spell a word you were told to look it up in the dictionary and then you were you asked how the dictionary worked and you were told that it's organized by spelling yes completely <laughs> wrong and you were supposed to somehow reconcile this as as the appropriate interface for dealing with your language. Yes, it was, yeah, definitely really bad. There was a dictionary that came out from Encarta, like in the 90s, where they actually list, a paper dictionary, where they actually listed misspellings. So that if you looked at the misspelling, 
you would be directed towards the right word. And people got so angry about that because they were like, you're putting wrong words in the dictionary because they had that mental model of the dictionary as the list of good words and not as the tool to find out more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So actually trying to direct people to the, to the generally accepted spellings is something that we're trying to do better at WordNick, but we don't do it very well right now. I'll, I'll be honest. I always feel kind of guilty when I... Uh when I mistype something into WordNick because one of its cool user-friendly features is that it tells you how many times someone has searched for something. And I know that I have, you know, caused that counter to go up by one on some nonsense. That actually, that actually helps us a lot because like, if you think about trying to figure out what are plausible misspellings. So let's say for instance, I um, managed to fix the bit of WordNick that shows you the, um, the possible different spellings for whatever you've looked up. So I did the math on this once, but it's like one of those factorial things. Like if I try and show you every possible combination of five letter words, even within like a Levenstein distance of like two or three, you know, um, that's a lot of words. And then if I filter them just by the ones that have been looked up a certain number of times, then it helps me. So I can say, oh, okay, well, this variant has been looked up a lot of times, so let's go ahead and put a spelling redirect on it, if that makes sense. Um, Or when I'm trying to decide what things should get a redirect. Maybe something has a lot of example sentences, but it's the same person misspelling the same word in the same way over and over again. And then I can use the lookup counter to say, but it's only been looked up three times. Let's put this low on the priority list. So it's very helpful. (laughs) To tie it all back to Apple, maybe you can use this to avoid the Cupertino effect. Oh, the Cupertino effect, yes. Overzealous spell check. You know, I think what most people are really, I, I think why a lot of people are scared about strong AI is because their main interaction with predictive technologies is spell check. And they think, what if autocorrect was in charge of all the traffic lights in my town? And then they freak out. Well, I think my, my most terrifying interactions with that is I leave the predictive text bar up on iOS even though I don't use it that much. And I'll be typing along, I'll be typing something totally innocuous. And, you know, you you type a word that starts with M and you see flash by in the predictive text bar murder. And, <laughs> but then it's gone. And that was not what you were typing. And even if you backspace, you can't convince it to do it again. It's like, what what did it think that I was trying to say? And what would happen if it was really in charge? <laughs> That that's pretty scary. <laughs> I think I would not leave the predictive text bar up. I don't know if I want to know. Yeah, I, I I go back and forth. <laughs> yeah, so we did want wording to be as friendly as possible, and in fact, um, our first logo, like before we launched a public beta, or at least very early on, was pretty terrible. And I can say this because it was me who hacked it together, and it was like. It was this typeface where all the letters were made up of little dots, and we were really in love with the idea of like, oh, it shows the corpus, like every word's meaning is the composite of all of the evidence. 
And it was terrible. It was unreadable. So then we got a real designer, and he made this lovely logo with a heart. And then every time you change any kind of visual aspect of anything, you get the hater letter. And <laughs> the hater letter came like 20 seconds after we made it live. And it was this dude, and he was like, I hate the new logo. It's way too girly. And I was like, I am a girl. Also, the heart is orange. It is orange. It's like, uh, it's like your argument that something is too girly is not going to be a negative for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't remember how I responded to it, but I'm a total email pack rat, so I probably have the response somewhere. But like, thank you so much for your feedback. <laughs> I, this is maybe a silly question, uh, but you mentioned early on in the earlier in the episode that you wrote in RTF so that uh, you could get your text from Next to a Mac or, or wherever. Uh, as someone who works a lot with words, uh, how do you feel about uh, the state of, of moving text around today? Like, for example, Markdown is, uh, is really popular, and it's supposed to be a way to uh, preserve the ability to write in plain text and have it go anywhere, but to add the things like emphasis or uh, references to links or images uh do you feel like any of that uh has an effect on your work oh that's a good question i haven't spent much time in markdown um i tend not to like a processor between me and the output so if i'm if i want html at the end i'm just gonna type html um and also i feel like uh every time i look at, at Markdown, what I see is like a bunch of people arguing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, I, I really only try in a lot, like 15 to 20 minutes a day of reading Internet Flame Wars. And um, usually I use those up on other stuff, like whatever catches my eye on Twitter. So I found that for myself recently, I do a lot of pushing around words at work, too. And I write a lot of my notes and stuff to myself in sort of fakey, fakey Markdown. And, like, I think it compiles as real Markdown, but I don't care. Like, I have a copy of Marked by Brett Terpstra, which is a great utility for rendering Markdown in beautiful ways, but I think I open it, like, once a month. You know, most of the time, I'm just looking at the plain text. And then, like, today, I was actually trying to write some uh, wiki code, like, Wikipedia markup syntax, and I realized I was writing in Markdown, but... I was in Text Wrangler, so I was able to flex the, the regex muscles and just turn all of my headings into Wikipedia headers. And uh, I feel like it, it feels so like the past in some ways, but it's just like it's the lowest common denominator and it feel, feels like it's not going away. I probably should. Uh, I probably should use Markdown a little bit more than I do because I guess the reuse is worth it. Yeah, do you have any like classic Mac files that are lost to time that you wish you could desperately wish you could have back? <laughs> I'm just going to wait for Jason Scott. Like I figure eventually the archive team at the Internet Archive will will build an emulator for everything, so I just have to be patient. Um <laughs> you know, they'll start doing all the games and then eventually they'll hit every single file format ever. Um <laughs> 
I tended to save a lot of stuff in just plain old text files. And I can imagine after all the conversion work you've done, you'd want something that's going to endure. Yes. Yes. I don't really want... I was looking at... Oh my goodness. Like back in December, I was looking at some kind of like octal files. Like uh, there was some terrible dependency that had disappeared in some Scala project. And I was trying to see if you could actually just change the, the, like the underlying code, which did not work at all. And I had to like open up Vim, some terrible text editor that I don't like using. Oh boy, we're going to get email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me just point out that I don't like Vim and I don't like Emacs and I don't like VI. I like Nano. I like Pico. That's because I like don't code in the terminal window. <laughs> I use Sublime Text. <laughs> so I'm sure that if I had to actually, you know, do industrial strength, I would use some kind of IDE, but not today and probably not tomorrow. <laughs> At least now I can usually remember how to exit those damn things. Yeah, that's always always the trouble. Yeah, that that part. If you hit Control D enough, <laughs> and of course that's that's the beauty of having a terminal on on the Mac is that if you really really give up, you just click the close box, and terminal might yell at you, but you can terminate all the processes and it goes away. <laughs> right. P S kill dash nine. Right. <laughs> that, that'll get rid of just about everything. I also think that. A lot of markdowny type things become more and more attractive the slower a typist you are. And it, at some point, you reach like a point where it's, it slows you down more to go through the learning curve, like, like switching to the Dvorak keyboard or something. Mm-hmm. You might be faster at the end, but that doesn't matter if you don't have the time today. So if I took a day off and just spent the whole day typing Markdown, then probably I would be a happier and better human being, but that day has never happened. Yeah, so I feel like I have many technologies that, that feel that way. And even so, I've still accumulated a lot of stuff on my personal machines, on my work machine, where like it is so not stock that someone else sits down or I sit down at someone else's Mac. And it's like, wait, why do none of the buttons work? <laughs> My son still uses the old scroll direction. And I think I think that he does it just because he enjoys hearing me swear every time I have to <laughs> to use his machine. Like I really think that that it's a point of enjoyment for him. Well, he's a teenager, right? Yeah, yeah. So I really it's I, I actually need to like for his personal growth and development make sure that I'm mildly irritated by like many things that he does. So you can you can you can fight over your, your Mac interface interactions. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty lucky, though. He's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. He does not like it when I try and get him to use the command line, though. No, he, he's, he's gooey all the way? All the way. Yeah. Even trying to get him to use, like, Spotlight. I'm like, look, all you have to do is hit command space. And he, he's like, yeah, 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 whatever. Reach for the mouse. I guess that's what makes us the the retro old guard. Yeah, I just feel like his wrists are a lot younger than mine. <laughs> that's a really good point. He has the freedom to move his wrists away from the home row. <laughs> yes. The, there's no nagging reminder all the way up to the shoulder when he has any kind of overuse. 
<laughs> yeah. Aaron, thank you again for sharing stories of Word Nick and the ways that we got there. Thank you. So where can we find you on the internet? I am on Twitter in many, many incarnations, but the best one is probably E. McKean. If you see a pink robot, you've gotten to the right place. Um, and of course, WordNick is just W-O-R-D-N-I-K.com. And I did want to mention here, so you said that WordNick now is a nonprofit. Yes. And that part of your nonprofit funding now is this cool Adopt-A-Word program that you have going on. I'm glad you think it's cool. I think it's cool. Uh, to support WordNick, you can adopt any word. And what happens is you get a beautiful orange heart at the top of the page with your name next to it that says, for instance, the word kludge has been adopted by Ed Cormany. Which it has. <laughs> Which it has. Only insert your name here. You'll get stickers to commemorate your adoption and a downloadable certificate suitable for framing. Or suitable for filing away in your paperless folder on your Mac if you're that kind of person. <laughs> yes, exactly. You, you could use it as your um, desktop background. Oh, yeah. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've also given some excellent talks, the TED Talk, um, also last year at XOXO. Um, and we'll link those up in the show notes. Is there any place else that people should go for the Erinaceous Adventures of Aaron McKean? I hope to be updating my, you know, quote unquote personal site, which is basically AaronMcKean.com, which I bought just because I thought it'd be cool to have the domain name. Um, so that'll be updated soon-ish. Uh, and, oh, the linguists and or people who like JavaScript might like a talk I gave at the Fluent Conference about the linguistics of JavaScript. I imagine more of our listeners are are people who like JavaScript than linguists, but maybe there are a few few of them out there like me who fall in the intersection. The best part about that conference for me is that I had just had a bunch of stickers for the Semicolon Appreciation Society made up, <laughs> thinking thinking of it as like, oh yeah, editors and people who appreciate the semicolon. And then I realized, oh, I'm at a JavaScript conference. <laughs> there, are, there are lots of people who appreciate the semicolon. Or hate it with a fiery passion. <laughs> Yes, I, I don't have any, you know, semicolon denigration society stickers. Um, but I gave away all the semicolon appreciation society stickers in like 10 minutes and had to order a bunch more. Always fun when those nerd communities collide. Oh, yeah, that's the best part. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you again for joining us and talking about the Mac community. Yes. They're very nice people. Hearts for everybody.